This is District Sentinel Radio, the newscast of record for the left. I am Sam Sachs. I'm Sam Knight. We are broadcasting out of Washington, D.C. Check out the website, districtsentinel.com. Check out the Patreon, too, patreon.com slash districtsentinel. All new subscribers get access to the bonus content we put out, and they get their own poem written for them and read on the air. We're going to read some haiku later on in the show. First, some news on the uh, cancel culture front here. People uh, probably already saw this over the weekend, how the head writer over at Tucker Carlson's Fox News show uh, was outed as a white supremacist. He uh, was posting anonymously on some message boards, um, basically saying the same sort of stuff that's on Tucker Carlson's show every night, but just without the uh, dog whistles, just more vulgar in the language that was used. Yeah, I was going to um, say, when, when when you say outed as a white supremacist, uh, <laughs> I, I think that phrase requires a little nuance because yeah, it, it wasn't a huge though, surprise. As though this guy's LinkedIn doesn't already prove that based yeah. on his uh, prior work at The Daily Caller and The Tucker Carlson Show. Well, uh, Tucker addressed uh, the... Uh, the story on his show Monday night and announced that um, totally unrelated, he's going on vacation, uh, a vacation that starts on a Tuesday. You go into work on a Monday to start your Tuesday vacation to go trout fishing. Uh, so it looks like uh, Tucker won't be on the air for a, a few more days. And uh, news coming in just before we were recording, Barry Weiss has quit the New York Times. Uh, she has self-canceled herself from the New York Times here. Uh, getting ready to make that uh, that jump over to Patreon, probably, uh, and claim victimhood. Claim victimhood, and we'll probably claim like $15,000 a month from probably like 200 patrons. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, the old uh, $100 a month tier. She's going to get uh, a lot of those. It, All was, right. it was quite the day, though, because shortly after Barry Weiss quit, Andrew Sullivan said he was quitting at New York Mag. Hmm. So it was really it was really a night of the long lanyards. <laughs> well, uh, moving on from meaningless news to uh, the important stuff. It's Tuesday, July 14th, 2020. Here's the news. Yesterday, we discussed how the court had blocked Attorney General William Barr's efforts to resume federal executions. Well, unfortunately, that roadblock was overcome not too long after we went off air. Early on Tuesday morning, the government performed a lethal injection on 47-year-old Daniel Lewis Lee. Lee marked the first instance of the federal death penalty in 17 years since 2003. His execution went ahead after the Supreme Court ruled 5-4 along party lines in the middle of the night to reverse a lower court ruling that put a hold on the execution the lower court had determined that the new drug cocktail being used by the Justice Department was, quote, very likely to cause plaintiffs extreme pain and needless suffering during their executions, end quote. Those new drugs were necessary because the prior drug cocktail used for lethal injections became scarce following the European Union export ban on drugs that could be used for executions in the U.S. In the 2 a.m. Supreme Court ruling, the majority of justices said the government's competing expert testimony indicating that the concerning physical effects caused by the drug cocktail occurs only after the prisoner 
had died or been rendered fully unable to feel sensations, that expert testimony was sufficient. Therefore, the court ruled that the plaintiffs in the case had not made the arguments required to justify last-minute intervention. In their dissent, though, Justices Breyer and Ginsburg argued it's time to consider if federal executions can even be carried out in a way that's compatible with the Constitution. They noted that Lee's 20-year-long wait on death row alone constituted severe psychological torture and cruel and unusual punishment. The judges also said that Lee's accomplice in the crime was given a life sentence, proving the arbitrary nature of administering the death penalty. Breyer and Ginsburg conclude the dissent writing, quote, The solution may be for this court to directly examine the question whether the death penalty violates the Constitution, end quote. One of the attorneys for Lee criticized the government for the timing of his execution. In a statement, lawyer Ruth Friedman said it was, quote, shameful that the government saw fit to carry out this execution during a pandemic, and it is beyond shameful that the government, in the end, carried out this execution in haste, end quote. As we noted on yesterday's show, another federal execution scheduled for Wednesday is currently on hold for a separate legal challenge. Two other executions, one scheduled for Friday and another next month, are still a go, though. By the way, speaking of the Department of Justice, Sentinel shadow producer Matt noticed something strange. The Department of Justice hasn't released a statement on federal inmates dying of COVID-19 in the last 10 days. Prior to that, there were rolling announcements on a near daily basis. We've reached out to the DOJ to inquire if this is a new policy of non-disclosure. We'll let you know when we hear back. Washington is a town with many unfortunate negative connotations, scheming politicians, palm-greasing lobbyists, overpriced restaurants, a special type of hot dog that's barely different from normal hot dogs. But half-smokes do have a unique flavor. Also, thanks to activists, D.C. has extremely positive vibes as a city leading the fight against the drug war and it's driving one Republican dork in Congress up the wall for the second time this decade. Last week, organizers cleared the signature threshold to give voters here in the nation's capital the option to decriminalize hallucinogens. It would be the first city on the East Coast to do so. Known as Initiative 81, the referendum will be on the ballot this November if the signatures pass certification. The ballot language would force law enforcement in D.C. to deprioritize arrests and prosecution for non-commercial cultivation, distribution, possession, and use of, quote, entheogenic plants and fungi, stuff like mushrooms, mescaline, and ayahuasca. Manufactured substances like LSD won't be on the ballot, sadly, but you got to start somewhere. Impressively, the pandemic lockdown didn't stop organizers from getting the 36,000 signatures they needed. As the Associated Press reported yesterday, they canvassed grocery stores, protests against police violence, and polling stations during last month's Democratic primary. Of course, Congress still has veto power over D.C. laws, and at least one congressional Republican nerd is calling for that power to be exercised if I-81 is approved by D.C. voters. Maryland's Andy Harris said the following in opposition per the New York Post, quote, 
This is a bald-faced attempt to just make these very serious, very potent, very dangerous, both short-term and long-term hallucinogenic drugs broadly available. He added, quote, what would prevent people from using hallucinogens, getting behind the wheel of a car, and killing people? I don't know, Harris. Uh, probably the hallucinogens themselves. Obviously, this is a man who is not talking from personal experience here. Congressman Harris seems, by the way, like he would benefit greatly from having his third eye opened and experiencing ego death. Harris also opposed the push to have cannabis legalized in D.C. It's partially why the city has a weird gray market where it's technically illegal to buy and sell weed, so everyone here pretends it's a donation. But this was also when Republicans were in control of the House. It's unclear what sway, if any, Harris has over D.C. at this point. Despite the congressman's alarmist language, there's growing evidence that psychedelics can be used to treat depression, trauma, addiction, and other mental health ailments. As the AP noted last year, Johns Hopkins University in Baltimore established a Center for Psychedelic and Conscious Research to advance studies in the field. And if anyone at JHU is listening to this and needs a test subject, at the DC Sentinel on Twitter, our DMs are open. A Government Accountability Office report released on Tuesday found that the government under President Trump is drastically underestimating the costs of continued carbon emissions. The report noted that prior to a 2017 executive order, regulatory agencies calculated a pretty hefty damage estimate per metric ton of carbon dioxide released into the atmosphere. Based on scientific research and guidance, agencies pegged it at $50 per metric ton beginning in 2020, and by 2050, the damages would increase to more than $80 per metric ton of carbon. Now, those estimates are critical to weighing the costs of new carbon reduction regulations compared to the costs of doing nothing and seeing what happens as the seas rise. However, upon Trump assuming office and issuing an executive order, those estimates have drastically been reduced. GAO reported that the calculation set the cost of damages at only $7 per metric ton of carbon. So it dropped from $50 per ton down to only $7, the damage estimate. The biggest factor for the decline, according to the government watchdog, agencies previously took into account the global damages associated with carbon emissions, but the new guidance instructed agencies to only factor in the domestic damage associated with emissions. GAO pointed out, a number of reasons this new calculation is insufficient. For one, emissions of most greenhouse gases, such as carbon dioxide, contribute to damages around the world, even when they are emitted in the United States. And two, the calculation assumes that this is a problem that only the United States can solve. Most troubling, the new significantly lower damage estimate is being used to destroy climate change regulations. J.O. noted that the Bureau of Land Management, the National Highway Traffic Safety Administration, and the EPA are all using the current artificially low estimates for rulemaking. It was the basis for a 2018 repeal of the 2016 Waste Prevention Rule. It was also used to craft the so-called Safer Affordable Fuel Efficient Vehicles Rule. 
The point is, if you lower the estimated costs of carbon damage in the future, then it makes regulations to stem carbon emissions look a lot more costly, thus justifying their repeal. While the U.S. is currently estimating the social cost of carbon at a mere $7 per metric ton, other countries have a much higher calculation. Canada puts the price at between $38 and $159, and Germany set it at between $218 and $776 per metric ton of carbon. Basically, what's happening in the U.S. is institutionalized climate denialism, GAO reported in 2017 that the National Academies urged the government to update its social cost of carbon estimates to reflect the best science available. GAO recommended the government actually do this. The Departments of Interior and Transportation and the EPA had no comment in response. Finally, an update on the Federal Reserve's Emergency Relief Fund for state and local governments. It's called the Municipal Liquidity Facility, but the number of municipalities it has provided liquidity to is precisely zero. Only one entity has been able to borrow from the facility, the state of Illinois. This was pointed out in a letter to the Fed from Senate Democrats released today by Elizabeth Warren. As we noted in previous coverage, the Fed set up the fund tying interest rates to credit ratings in a way that did not prioritize accessibility. Here was an explanation from Fed Vice Chair Randall Quarles testifying before the Senate in May. Uh, we should be, uh, uh, in general, looking for uh, private sector credit, uh, which the banks are able to provide uh, to handle uh, those uh, the most creditworthy uh, borrowers, uh, and that the supplementary uh, credit that's provided through a 13-3 facility uh, is you know, appropriately at a uh, somewhat higher rate to ensure that we don't crowd out that private sector financing. Don't want to crowd out that private sector financing, despite the fact that the stock market hasn't crashed since the coronavirus stimulus passed in March, the private sector is looking, well, pretty bad in general. The Bureau of Labor Statistics released the latest wage data today, real week. Real weekly earnings were down 2.3% in June. You also probably saw a pair of headlines in in CNBC last week about a wave of evictions that looks slated to hit the country soon. Up to 28 million people could lose their homes. I don't think crowding out private sector financing should be anywhere near the top of the list of our concerns right now. As the Democratic senators noted in their letter, city leaders across the country are bracing for slasher budgets. The National Conference of Mayors estimated service cuts this year for 76% of cities with more than 500,000 people. The lawmakers urged the Fed to relax its terms on borrowing from the facility, saying, quote, at least match the generosity you have provided through the facilities that lend to businesses that are of even poorer credit quality than the municipal borrowers. The Fed has allocated $35 billion to the municipal liquidity facility. The only user, Illinois, has only borrowed $1.2 billion. On top of this wiggle room, Treasury still hasn't allocated more than half of the $454 billion in relief that it was tasked with administering under the March stimulus. Reuters reported yesterday that New Jersey is also considering tapping the MLF for part of $9.9 billion in borrowing approved by state officials. 
Okay, that'll do it for the newscast. That music means it's time to read some haiku for our new subscribers over at Patreon, patreon.com slash District Sentinel. Sam, why don't you get started? This is for Brett. Oppression alarm. Do not attack my columns. I am going home. <laughs> Thank you, Brett. And this one goes out to Marcus. Swimming in sewers, catching some rats by the tail, Pete Buttigieg's. <laughs> thank you, Marcus. Yes, thank you, Marcus. And thanks to all the new subscribers. Again, that's patreon.com slash district sentinel. We've got a brand new chip chat coming out tomorrow. We uh, break down some documents that Sam Knight received via FOIA. And we also talk about the death penalty. And then on Thursday, Means Morning News comes out, new edition of that. And then we're right back here Friday with a subscriber show, The Garbage Can Show. Stay tuned for all that. We're here in D.C., so you don't have to be.